Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. My name is Hani Rashwan. I'm your host, and I hope you enjoyed this week's session. This week, we will be discussing two important topics. In light of the recent crackdowns by the SEC on early crypto companies, we want to investigate how these recent enforcement actions impact our industry. After that, we'll be doing a recap of the existing token models in the current cryptocurrency world. Joining me today are um, Lanra on our research team, Laurent, our head of ETFs, Ophelia, our president, and Hansen from our product and ops team. Lanra, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you, Hani. So perhaps the biggest news from last week was the SEC settlement with Block One, the issuer of the EOS token, for uh, the charges of them uh, issuing an unregistered security during their token sale from 2017 to 2018. Uh, the, for a bit of context, the token sale raised about $4 billion, uh, allegedly. And there's been a lot of talk that if there were any token sale or crypto asset project which would be eventually chased after by the SEC, it would perhaps be block ones. What was more interesting is that as a proportion of uh, the amount of funds raised by Block One, the settlement was relatively small, so around 0.6% of the total uh, funds raised in uh, the token sale. And especially compared to some of the other settlements, such as the ones done with Ether Delta or even done with Coins issue over the last year, the settlement was a lot smaller. So what I find interesting is that, especially in the context of thinking about the effect that regulation has had on the token market to perhaps lower interest in issuers launching their own token sales or even putting off some uh, exchanges from listing certain tokens which have had their own ICOs. I'm very interested to see what the group thinks the long-term impacts of the SEC's settlement with EOS and Block One will have on the wider, uh, on the wider crypto asset market. So does anyone have any comments, especially in light of some of the other settlements the SEC has brought for token sale projects, what this most recent settlement will due to the rest of the industry? Um, I have a comment. So, I mean, in general, it's it's a very thin line, right? The regulators have a job, which is to protect the investors or the people. And that's on the one side. And on the other side, you want to provide enough room for, you know, projects, for founders, for developers to build, you know, a new infrastructure based on you know, blockchains. Um, and finding the, the right mix of both is very difficult. In EOS case, so I'm not too familiar with um, what happened exactly, um, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Lanre, they were, um, they felt against their ICO, right? They were saying it was an unregulated token sale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in this case, I think, you know, when it comes to token sales, um, it is okay if regulators are a bit stricter. But what I find more interesting or relevant is what comes after. Right. Once you build a decentralized application, like, for example, 
um, Melonport built uh, funds based on a smart contract. I think regulators could be a bit more friendly in that aspect to allow for innovation to go faster. You know, if if you if you regulate everything too strongly, um, it will just slow down the growth. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's an interesting point. So before I get into, I know Laurent has a comment. Before I get into that, I think you brought up a quite interesting point on the distinction between the token sale and the token and the secu- the unregistered security which may be issued during that token sale, and then the crypto asset or the token which exists post launch. Was this something that Block One put a lot of emphasis on in their own press release following the settlement? So if I want to read directly from what Block One said, that, uh, so this is directly from their website. The settlement relates specifically to the ERC-20 token sold on the Ethereum blockchain during the aforementioned period, which is no longer in circulation or traded and will not require the token to be registered as a security with the SEC. The settlement resolves all ongoing matters between Block One and the SEC. So a lot of the industry commentators have picked up on some of the language used by Block One to suggest that the, the settlement perhaps suggests that, okay, so the token was considered an unregistered security and the token sale at the time was an unregistered security operant. But this has no effect on the current state of the EOS token on the EOS blockchain post-launch. Uh, and you saw a similar thing, especially uh, the, the SEC directors, William Hinman's comments on Ether back in 2017, 2018, where he kind of distinguished between the token sale and some of the problems around the token sale from a regulatory standpoint and the Ether token, which now exists on the Ethereum blockchain, perhaps suggesting that the latter wouldn't be subject to some of the regulatory scrutiny that the former could have been, uh, which I think is an interesting point. Laurent, I know you had a point that you wanted to make. Thanks, Andre. Yeah, so I was just... Um just reviewing what you said on the violation, and it seems that the cause of the action is on the registration and exemption, uh, and also that some U.S. investors were uh, part of this uh, ICO sale. So I'm just wondering, because the, um, the, the fee that they're paying is so marginal, do you believe that they could bring other companies doing such a, a sale onto the market? Because it's almost a drop in the sea. Uh, good point. Uh, and, and I know some people have suggested that, you know, this settlement, the, the, the magnitude of the settlement won't do anything to actually deter further violations like this. I think EOS will probably be more of an exception to the rule rather than the rule itself. Because I think so, for example, if you, if you read some of the uh, EOS Block 1's lawyers, arguments for why they should perhaps have more of a lenient uh, lenient settlement. Some of, the, some of the points they make don't necessarily apply to token sales that uh, would occur from you know, 2019 onwards. Specifically, so a lot of the arguments for why EOS, for why the EOS token sale was considered an unregistered security operand is based upon the Harry test and then also uh, some of the some of the findings the SEC got from the DAO report, which was, uh, so the DAO was an early token on the Ethereum blockchain in 2016, was the SEC after the fact deemed to be a security. And the DAO report has been used to set a precedent for which tokens more or less are deemed as securities uh, in the SEC's eyes. And the interesting point to note is that the EOS token uh, token sale occurred a, occurred a month before the DAO report was released. And Coolies, who were the lawyers for Block One for this case, argued that 
this fact is part of the reason why the SEC should perhaps be a bit more lenient on them. So, you know, obviously such an argument like that couldn't be used, uh, you know, for, for someone that wants to issue a token in 2020, for example, because now a president has been set that certain things uh, aren't to be issued to U.S. investors and they can't necessarily build the same kind of argument that Block 1 have done. And also, I think another interesting thing, so out of all the tokens that, out of all the token projects which have reached settlements with the SEC, you know, Block 1 is probably one that, as a percentage of their token raise, probably gotten off the most light. And that's probably more of a testament given to how good their lawyers were and how strong an argument they could make based off their lawyers' expertise in the area, rather than to suggest that any token issuer or any token project would be as able to make a similar argument. So, you know, to put it simply, I feel we're not going to see many projects going forward getting off as lightly as Block One have in this case. I think the the elephant in the room here is kick, because I think the the fact that Block One was able to get away with so much more in in funding and a much larger ICO versus what Kick is doing for something significantly smaller. I think a, a few people did the calculations. And it would be a six-figure fine for for Kick based on the same ratios here, um, but obviously Kick went down a different road and did a different strategy. So I also wonder what, if anything, this is going to um, have uh, as an effect on Kick and others like it that are perhaps taking an aversion to settlement in the same way. Honey, can you give us a quick update on what happened with Kick? Um... I didn't follow it quite well, so I'm not exactly sure what happened there. So, Kick had an ICO that raised a lot less money. Um, Block One was close to four billion. Kick had, I think, about a hundred million raised. But similar uh, problems were brought up by the SEC um, with respect to uh, unregistered security sales, American buyers, etc. But Kick, instead of uh, thinking about settling, at least publicly actually went on this public campaign. Um, we set up a website called Defend Crypto, tried to incorporate uh, as many players in the space as possible um, and are, are sort of creating this um, internal industry crusade or trying to uh, against what they think is um, a, an overly aggressive or unnecessary um, SEC action with respect to ICOs. And so I think they're fighting this a lot more. Um, it doesn't seem like they, they've settled. And just in the last week, Kick was um, – the, the actual application that is Kick, uh, we got news that it might be shut down. The company is not in the best of financial positions as a result of their fight with the SEC. And I think it is likely that they will spend – at minimum, at minimum, seven figures, but possibly low eight figures in their fight with the SEC, which when you look at this fine for a $4 billion um, ICO sale is, is a little bit outrageous here. So I wonder if the uh, difference in strategies here will have any ramifications and what, what your thoughts are. To some degree, uh, from my perspective, I think all of this boils down to just needing some extra clarity. And I think this is a global problem, not just an SEC-related one, certainly not just a US-related one. I think 
the, let's call it discrepancies in enforcement that you're pointing to here and sort of the different strategies that have been taken, I think boil down to there isn't really a standard yet. There isn't a standard for how um, enforcement and ICOs works. Then there isn't even necessarily a standard for how do you quantify and qualify a utility token versus something that, you know, maybe does look more like a tokenized security. And it, to some degree, feels like there's some catch-up that's being played on the regulatory side to really get a handle on what exactly the differences and the nuances of these products are. I think unlike traditional environments where most structures are fairly well understood, but and even there, you still spend quite a bit of time with discrepancies and enforcement and quite a bit of time in sort of education, especially when bringing new things to market. I think that crypto and ICOs um, as an, at an industry level are sort of going through those same growing pains of bringing something you know, a little different, a little creative to market and, and watching sort of regulators get up to speed on really what are the nuances here and how do you think about these different things. I think that potentially is one of the reasons why you're seeing such different approaches to enforcement. But yeah. Ophelia, do you think there's any material difference between the kick ICO and block one? I think it's likely that whatever differences there are that is causing these cha- deltas in enforcement, and to be quite frank, I think I'm sort of speaking off the cuff here, um, I think it generally has a tendency to be subtle, but that's true of how securities regulation works, right? You're allowed to say certain things, but not others, and they may seem somewhat inconsequential, but they are generally very specific. So you're allowed to call a product X, but not Y. You're allowed to market a product using this type of language, but not this one. Um, Something is considered research or not marketing. At what point do those two things converge? Uh, Frequently, subtlety is an important element in the regulation of traditional financial assets. I imagine something similar is happening here, except the rule book is far less codified. Yeah, and I just want to add to Ophelia's point, good point, is how I see it, it's almost like uh, people are trying to fit, you know, this new paradigm of tokens and total model, token models into the, you know, old regulatory framework. And Lanre, you addressed the Howey test earlier on, and I have the Howey test in front of me right now. And for example, I mean, both EOS and Kick's case, right, who they, where they claim they're not a um, security, the first point to pass the Howey test is that, you know, when it comes to the token sale or the investment, it's, it's not supposed to be investment of money. Yeah. So you shouldn't expect, you know, profits in the future. But then, I mean, you know, when we speak clearly, uh, anyone who invests in an ICO ever did clearly has hope to, to, you know, that the money raises. And I feel like it's almost like a PR thing from every crypto company. They're trying to say, no, 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 it's not an investment. It's a, it's a contribution. And uh, people shouldn't, they write a little paragraph in there saying people shouldn't expect uh, that the money is an investment and go up, but underlyingly, everyone still thinks that. So, I mean, in this case, you know, when they apply the Howey test to determine if a token is a utility token or payment or security, they're not really making progress. They're really just making companies trying to go around the regulation. So, I disagree with that completely. I think that applications of these standards are important, right? There are people who invest in euros and who build money market funds. And that's very much using a currency, which is meant as a method of exchange to generate some kind of returns. And the tax treatments around those are often very complicated. Um, I I think that it's a stretch to say that, you know, 
all tokens behave in a certain way. I think there certainly are important sort of structural differences and important sort of utilitarian and design differences that really do change what the purpose of a token is. And I think that that certainly should have um, bearing on how they're regulated. At the end of the day, we don't really think about uh, regulating credits on PayPal versus a money market fund versus um, Apple shares as the same thing. And I think uh, we sometimes have a tendency to get bogged down in the tech of it all, where all, you know all things that exist on a blockchain are therefore created equal. And I, I think that's very much not true. Um, I think we're starting to get to the point as an industry where we're moving away from that and we're having a different conversation, that it's not all about the underlying tech and how what is effectively the back end works. And it's more important about what the real use case is and what the real utility of that product is. And I think that when you look at it through that lens, the differences in what a token is designed to be used for and how it operates within its ecosystem is incredibly important when you think about regulation. No, no, I agree with you. I think I wasn't very clear in what I said before. My, my problem uh, with the current approach of the regulators is they're trying to fit this new paradigm into the old regulatory framework, right? You know, we, we have a we have a token now that does something. It doesn't entitle you to any of the assets or profits, but they still use the old Howey tests to determine is the security or not. Maybe it would be a good idea, and that leads to your earlier point. You know, if they design some kind of new new tests and new regulation around it to make it clearer and you know easier for people. Right now, as a founder, you're afraid to you know launch a new token, right? Because you're not sure, you know, is it going to be categorized as a security or not? Um, and I feel that stifles innovation. I would be curious to see what your primary uh, issues with the Howey test are. Because I think that the same kind of argument could be made against applying the Howey test to traditional securities today. I think if you look at the actual history of how the Howey test came about, it might seem a bit antiquated across a number of uh, industries and not just this new asset class that is, that is crypto. Um, and I think it... it it's, it's an interesting thought exercise of, oh, we should create specific new regulations for um, specifically crypto. But I think what often happens is that things like the Howey test themselves are as equally um, problematic with other product types or other industries um, as, they, as they are with crypto today. And so I, I, just, I just wonder if there's actually... Um, if there's actually a case here where something is new or this is just par for the course with respect to um, regulations and precedent. I mean, to some degree, I think you're right. I think it's hard to... Regulations, I think, always have a challenge of having to play catch up to sort of inherent creativity. People are always trying to create new financial products that do new things. And there is always this sort of discrepancy. But yeah, Hanson, I'd be super curious to see where, where you see those those issues of the Howey test, because I think I think those issues certainly do exist on the traditional security side, but I think we sort of make do. Um, and I wonder how, how you would think about that in a tokenized environment. The main problem I have with the Howey test as a test to determine if a token is a security or not, is the fundamental assumption, if it's not a security, is that the money put into a project is not intended as an investment. Every crypto project from you know 
2017, where they didn't do proper KYC and didn't, you know, got a lot of retail investors in, shy away massively from saying that they were an ICO. Precisely because everyone who contributed to a project in their head thinks, hey, I hope, you know, my 20 Ether that I put in will grow over time. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, as I said before, the Howey test assumes that the money put into a project is not an investment, but everyone who ever puts money in any project does hope that the money they put into a project goes up. So based on this one fundamental uh, part of the Howey test, um, you could argue that every single uh, token sale ever, uh, you know, could be could be fined for being a uh, investment. But I think you have to divvy out value from economic return. There's a difference, right? Like let's use Kickstarter as an example, right? You will put up money early to buy a product that you want to purchase from a company that basically doesn't exist and say, I will take a discount on that. And you're hoping that the $200 that you give them will actually return you $300 worth of value for your on a risk adjusted basis. Right. And I think that, but that doesn't necessarily make the oven I bought via Kickstarter a security or even make that transaction anything other than a purchase or a sale. And so I think that the piece that's missing, I think, from the analysis you're putting forward is that a lot of these networks are about effectively buying value at a discount, right? When you buy Ethereum, what you're really thinking about is, or what you should be thinking about is, hey, what can I use this for later? What can I build with it later? What will I be able to acquire using this transactional method later? And will the value of that exceed the value I pay for it today? Right? What can I trade this for at a later date? Um, And I think to some degree, especially where you're actually using that as a consumable, it largely behaves more like a commodity, right? And generally speaking, commodities in their raw form are not considered securities. Um, I think an example for that would be, you know, like oil. You know, you can buy barrels of oil in advance of needing them and store them. And like a large shipping company might do that, not on a, like as a security, but quite frankly, as a utilitarian thing to be used later. And I think that that's a dimension that, you know, while there are certainly people who are speculating on these assets, I think that um, there's also this element of, you know, what is the real intention of the people who are producing these assets? And I think that's a different question. Just because you're pumping oil does not necessarily mean that you are selling someone a security that's based on oil. Um, you may very well be selling somebody a barrel of oil that they intend to use. And I think that that's an important distinction because the securitization of something is also an important process to think about when you're determining if something's a security or not. It's not purely based on you know speculative buying value you can make the same argument about art right i can buy a painting and uh, hope it appreciates in value that doesn't necessarily make that painting a security and i think that there it's important not to get too too caught up in like uh, hopes of future value growth versus actual securitization which involves that being the only reason for doing this or the only reason for taking on a specific a specific asset and I think that's somewhat different when you think about tokens, especially something like Ethereum. Yeah, and, and I feel it's especially the comparison to oil or just generally commodities is an interesting one, especially when you think about certain actions which the SEC have carried out in the last year. So for a bit of context, the SEC has issued two no-action letters to two token sell or token sell projects, the first of which was Turnkey Jet and the second of which was uh, Pocket Full of Quarters. And both of these were tokens and they both had token issuance events. But unlike something, a token like EOS or some of the other token sales, uh, these tokens acted much more like, you know, 
Chuck E. Cheese vouchers or, or game vouchers rather than, you know, things that had openly tradable secondary markets for. And the argument to understand why these were obviously not securities was quite easy uh, for the SEC to believe and for the, for the lawyers in the case of both these projects to argue. It does get a bit more complicated when you have something, like I think a good example of something that may be on the fence would be something like Augur or Rep, where, yes, someone would buy a Rep to- token to take part in a prediction market or to stake on a prediction market. And there would be some kind of economic future value, which uh, they would, you know, want to have a part of by investing in that token. But it isn't entirely clear whether that value is purely financial or, some, or something just more generally you know, utilitarian along those lines. And then an argument for whether something like the rep token should be considered more of a digital commodity rather than a security uh, could be more easily made. Uh, and I, I think we're going to continue to have, you know, arguments over something like rep or certain tokens which do actually act more similar to commodity markets rather than tokens over the, over the next few years. And there are quite a few interesting tokens which are very much in this middle ground between Chuck E. Cheese tokens and fallout securities. No, absolutely. And I think it depends a lot on what the actual tokens behaviors are. Um, it's the, the auger and the prediction markets are super, super interesting um, with respect to a comparison um, with uh, Chuck E. Cheese, right? Because you could argue that there are games of chance at Chuck E. Cheese. You are able to take your game tokens and play a game and win additional tickets that can be reimbursed for uh, pieces of monetary value or prizes. Um, but um, the same thing could apply to 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 Augur as well. Um, this is um, this has been fascinating, but I think it's time to move on. So if there's no more questions, I think we should kick off the next session on token models. Hansen, do you want to start? Yes. Thank you, Hani. And actually, it's funny. I mean, the next topic ties in very neatly to our first topic. Um, so let's talk token models, right? And I want to do a quick recap, very quick. Um, so anyone who's been in the token economy for a while, uh, the evolution of tokens is, is very clear, right? It all started with Bitcoin, which came as the first pure cryptocurrency shortly after the financial crisis. And then in 2014, Ethereum came along, which introduced the concept of smart contracts to the blockchain. And it also allowed people to build decentralized applications for the first time. And it allowed people to launch their own token. And that's what we saw, right? From the beginning of 2016, the explosion started. Left, right, and center, companies launched their own tokens, um, you know, often raising several tens of millions of dollars with nothing but a white paper. And then I would say about half a year later, the regulators started to catch up and started to crack down. And we heard <laughs> some of those examples just now. And they started to, you know, formalize frameworks around tokens. And then after that, I would say starting in early 2018, security tokens or equity tokens were the new hot thing. And that's, you know, all the way until now. I think most of the industry's focus right now is still on security tokens. Now, personally, I like security tokens, but I don't think we should focus on them so much today because the concept is quite straightforward, right? They're basically the same thing as a normal security just in a, wrapped in a token. 
at least in theory, it's uh, you know very simple. When it comes to the implementation, I hear it's quite hard. And also, until today, there's only very few uh, security tokens in circulation. Instead, I think we should focus more on the existing tokens in circulation. So this is basically a recap of what has been going on in the token market the last three years. And if we look at CoinMarketCap, as of today, there's almost 3,000 different tokens on the market, out of which the vast majority um, are still considered to be utility tokens. So what is a utility token, right? I have the FIMA definition right in front of, in front of me. Uh, utility tokens are tokens which are intended to provide digital access to an application or service, of course, on the blockchain. But that's a very general uh, definition. And there's lots of room you know, for interpretation. Um, it really depends on, on the protocol or the depth that you have if the token you know, has utility or not. Just to give some examples, you know, the first kind of utility tokens is used to pay for service as a platform. I like to look at Siacoin as an example. Siacoin is basically like a decentralized Dropbox. And in order to you know, buy space, you pay in their native token. And of course, they get paid as well in that. And then in other cases, you can use it for staking, like in Tezos or Ethereum 2.0's example. And then again, in other cases, you know, the main utility of the token is governance. You, know, you have a protocol that's supposed to be decentralized, um, and then you need a voting mechanism in there. And that's what the token is used for. But the main fundamental difference between, let's say, an equity token and a utility token is that the equity token does like traditionally, give you ownership over a company or an asset, and the utility token does not. It's just used to access the, the service or the product of the company. So one thing we've heard commonly, especially you know, starting second half of last year, is that, that ICOs are dead and that STOs are the new thing. So my first open question to the round is, do you agree with that statement? Do you think that going forward we won't see much ICOs anymore? You know, imagine you are a founder and you have a business idea now. Would you go the STO route or, or you know, the utility token road? Or would you maybe even, you know, consider just doing it traditionally? You know, just how they've been doing it for the past hundreds of years. I mean, let me start with a simpler example when it comes just to fundraising, right? Do you believe that the fundraising with the utility token or, you know, issuing a security token it's more viable nowadays after you've seen what's been going on in the past three years. Okay, I, I can take a first pass at answering that. I think it very much depends on what you're trying to do. I think similar to the conversation we were having just a couple minutes ago about commodities and about um, and about sort of how how to think about classifying products and classifying tokens from a regulatory perspective, I think it goes hand in hand. Depends entirely on what you're doing. If you are trying to launch a platform and part of that involves you know, needing that native token, then that makes an enormous amount of sense. But on the other hand, if you're looking at let's call it a more traditional type of product or a situation where you know, maybe the the blockchain components are not integral to what you're doing. Then maybe you're looking more at a security token. And I think, I think security tokens, to me, are, are fascinating. I I think that we need to be very, very careful as an industry. Um, we don't want security tokens to become the place where companies who can't do an IPO on a normal market go to raise funds. I think the whole point here is 
increasing like what I would like to think of as structural liquidity. So making it easier to transfer difficult to transfer assets and making it easier for um, let's call it more seamless trading experiences to exist. And I think that's certainly an element of security tokens, especially when you think about security token exchanges. But I think that to some degree is a, a different market than the ICO market. Um, I think that will continue to exist in some format, but it will be much more sort of commodity oriented and traditional fundraising will likely look more like an STO. Um, Although I think we do need to be a little careful about how those are structured and what they end up actually looking like in practice. Sure. I mean, let's look at a specific example of what you just said, but let's, let's take the example of Sia coin. We want to open a company you know, we need some funding as well. And our business model is basically CS, where we do a decentralized uh, Dropbox. Anyone can provide some storage space in exchange for money. You can always just use cash for that, right? You can always say you have to pay in USD. Uh, you can use the blockchain-based infrastructure. But Coin chose a, chose a route to do utility token instead. It would it'd be very much a, a viable option to structure it like a STO. You have a company, the more it's being used, more of the revenue you get. Um, I just wonder if we look back, you know, after we've seen the mistakes that's been done, we've seen the SEC crack down on people like uh, Neo and 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 Kick. Um, if 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 you can imagine that lots of people would still make their own currency to use the system as opposed to going the normal way. I mean, I would argue in the example you just gave, though, that if you're actually going to use USD to invest in a company to then run your storage. That's not a de- that's not decentralized anymore. I think if decentralization is an important part of what you're doing, you sort of need that to be structured a little bit differently. And I think that's a case where you know something like a utility token and therefore an associated ICO has more like reason for existing versus I think some of the other things we've seen where you know you are maybe using this as an alternative route for funding um, for a company. I think the the example I gave earlier around Kickstarter is sort of applicable here. Are you buying an oven at a discounted rate because it hasn't been manufactured yet? Or are you buying shares in that company where you have an expectation of profit? And I think that's not just important from a determining whether or not something is a security, but also whether or not something should be constructed as a security in the first place. Yeah. And, and I definitely think another interesting point to bring up is that, so, so on the point of as Hansen mentioned earlier, maybe in 2017, a bit before, the hype was around utility tokens, and now it's shifted to more security tokens or token uh, security-esque tokens. Often in the crypto asset market, you know, the new projects uh, or the types of new projects which appear at any given stage is very much driven by, you know, what's trendy or what's in the zeitgeist. And in 2017, I think one of the reasons for the change is because in 2017, a lot of the theoretical understandings or arguments for why tokens and why crypto were important was very much fixated on the arguments that, okay, in, the same, in a similar way to how Bitcoin allowed us to have decentralized gold, we can now have decentralized protocols for various things, which are all run by their own you know, independent tokens. And I think two researchers or two, or two ideas specifically kind of drove a lot of this Argument. So, firstly, was the Fat Protocols thesis by Joel Manegro, who's a partner at Placeholder Capital now and previously was at USV. And then Chris Blinisky, a lot of his work around utility token valuation kind of drove a lot of this interest. And the whole idea was that 
So in a similar way to how in the US economy, you have the US dollar, which acts as the medium of exchange to power transactions in that economy. These different utility tokens would act as the internal fuel to power these decentralized file storage or networking economies. And that was kind of the argument that you saw a lot of these thousands of token sale projects make in 2017, uh, for better, for worse. And some of them had some credence. For example, something like Seacoin or something like Filecoin, there are perhaps you know, economic reasons why it makes sense to have a unique token uh, to ensure that the incentives of the different actors within the system are, uh, are sensical. But you know, going forward in 2019, what you've seen, aside from even the security tokens, You've seen a lot of these, I, I don't necessarily want to use the word quasi-security security tokens, but tokens which have certain aspects which are perhaps reminiscent of the way traditional securities work. So something like a buyback and burn model, uh, which we see in Binance Coin or MakerDAO or, or even Augur 2.0. And these tokens, while they won't necessarily be considered security tokens, do share some of the features of you know, these utility tokens 2017. And also the utility token, uh, also the security tokens, which Hansen said came to popularity a bit more recent. So, yeah, I, I think that's another important to think. Uh, another important to think about, aside from the regulatory reasons and maybe economic reasons why certain tokens may be popular, often the actions of different institutions and entities within the space are driven by some of the theoretical arguments that have been made for why crypto is important, and that has changed very drastically in the last two years. And which is why the tokens you'll see coming out in the next two years will look nothing like the things we saw raising money in 2017. I mean, I would maybe add that if you are willing to sort of, I don't know, fast forward X number of years, I think there's a real world where all securities basically are security tokens. Um based on the fact that if you think about the history of stock markets, um you know, we often talk about stock tickers, right? So like the four letters, uh, the, the alphanumerical set that defines a specific security that's trading on exchange that exists because of ticker tapes, right? Which were literally long strips of paper that had this information on it. Um, and NASDAQ was largely created out of the advent of digital trading. I think there's an argument to be made for it's actually better, faster, cheaper, more efficient to settle in clear securities instead of using a CSD, CCP model, which is sort of our traditional multi-clearing counterparty setup. Instead, you could use security tokens and you could use blockchain to do that. And so at some point, I wonder if we don't get a little caught up on you know what the format of these things are, especially when you talk about securities. I think as long as you're willing to agree that there's space for a security version of something or for that this thing is in fact a security, I think there's certainly space to discuss what global infrastructure looks like even beyond you know, necessarily crypto or token-related funding. I 100% agree, Ophelia. I actually believe that in the near future, you know, all securities, not all, will be gradual, but most securities will be tokenized for exactly the benefits you named. Uh, easier you know, tracking of ownership, easier a transfer of shares, and also then the internal systems of banks and shops and individuals can communicate with each other with the underlying platform, the blockchain. But here's some food for thought, right? I mean, how I see it is if you create a token for your business and we assume that it fits, um, we have another problem at hand. 
right? Let's say if you want to get an Uber, you need an Uber coin. And if you want to you know, eat at McDonald's, you need a McDonald's coin. And if you were really into decentralized storage, you need Sia coin. But then soon we run into a problem, which is that, you know, there's different coins for doing different things. And that really has a drag on the user experience, I feel. And user experience in tech is the key, right? People won't use it if it's not easy. I'll give you an example in DeFi, right? Let's say, you know, you want to lend out some, some Bitcoin, uh, but you only have Ether. So you first, if you want to trade on a DEX, you need like Kyber, you need the Kyber token to trade. Then you need the lending block token to lend it out. And then you also need Ether as an underlying to pay gas. So you need three different tokens for, for really one action. Do you see this as a problem for mainstream adoption? Or do you think, you know, that can be fixed quite easily? It's early days. I think, again, I think if you're talking, it goes back to the original problem, right? If you're talking about securities trading infrastructure and actually making and actually defining these things as securities and not sort of utility products, then I think some of this eventually goes away and we sort of settle on a couple of standardized ways of doing things. I think if you're talking about utility, uh, I mean, you tell me what people do with gift cards. Right, it's the same concept. If you're willing to put money in a specific network and only use that network, that's a certain thing, right? And their entire business is based on like buying back gift cards and helping you get cash for them at a reduced rate, and, and that does exist as an issue. But I also think some of this stuff will just settle out over time. Um, and at the end of the day, how many decentralized applications is the average human being actually going to use? I imagine it's not going to be hundreds. Most people don't use hundreds of standard applications. So I think that's that's part of it as well, right? We sort of need to think about this less as a everything will be a utility token versus, you know, if you're a power user of Uber, you may choose to use a utility token for payment instead of your credit card because there's some preferred rate or some reason to do that. And I think that that's an important nuance here is that I don't think utility tokens are necessarily one size fits all are necessarily right for everyone, for every application in every circumstance. And I think that will settle out as the sector matures. Yeah, I mean, we are early days. So I think uh, there definitely still is still room for exploration and experimenting. I mean, while we are on the topic of decentralization, I do want to address the token distribution part of token models, right? Every token sale, pretty much the same structure. Founder, founding team keeps a certain portion of them, and uh, the rest is, you know, given out to the public um, and the funds are used to, to, to develop the program. Now, I've had a look at what the industry standard is. I would say between 30 and 50% of tokens that are emitted from a project are usually kept uh, by a founding team. And now I want to, you know, wire that into the topic of decentralization. We said earlier, or we, we touched on that, that it makes sense to have a utility token if you're running a decentralized application. Now, let's look at it. Let's say we have a decentralized protocol at hand, and in theory, the concept is decentralized, like in Coin's um, example. But when the token is emitted, almost you know half of the tokens, I'm not sure in Coin's case, but in many cases, are kept by the, by the founding team. And and do you see do you see that as a as a diminisher of the decentralization, or do you think it's a necessary evil? I mean, you have to fund the project. You have to have some control over the token itself. I think it will end up depending on, on what kind of assets they are. If you 
I happen to agree with with the, what you and Ophelia were talking about earlier, which is in the near future, every uh, every equity is going to be transformed into what we call security token today. And at some point in the future, it will just be a technological transformation, and we'll call them security tokens for five or ten years. But at some point, secure the tokens part will be dropped, and they'll just be called securities, right? And so I think that. With respect to those kind of things, the things that are in the traditional world today that will just be uh, added to a blockchain for increased efficiency or uh, better features or what have you, clearly the model that you're talking about does not make much sense. However, where you get into new economic models and new ways of incentivizing and what have you, then potentially for those kinds of products... Um, and I think the, the, if it wasn't for the team incentives, uh, this wouldn't make as much sense. But the closest parallel that I can think of here is how startups incentivize uh, their very, very early employees with through stocks and what have you. Is that 50% of the company? Most cases, it's not. Um, it's 10 or 15 or, or 20%. And so I, I do think that we're a little bit early here and the projects end up taking a lot more than uh, they were if this was a direct parallel to, say, venture capital. Um, and then with respect to other uh, traditional uh, assets today that may or may not be uh, tokenized in the future, this absolutely would not make much sense. Yeah, I think that makes that's a great answer, actually. Um Maybe from another angle, right? And I want to stick with utility token again now. Um, and I mean, let's use Uber as an example, right? You have a Uber coin, the only currency you can use to pay for Uber rides. When I looked at the traditional models of how to value, you know, do the valuation of a token, one 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 method that came to that came up a lot was the so-called quantity theory of money or the equation of exchange. Uh, which is actually a standard framework in macroeconomics to value, to evaluate the value of money, um, and the I mean to explain the whole equation here, that's a bit out of my expertise, but I want to focus on one component there, which is the velocity. Yeah, so according to the quantity theory of money, the value of a token increases if the velocity decreases. So which means that if people are incentivized to hold a utility token for a longer period of time. The longer they're, you know, incentivized to hold it, the the further the the value of the token, at least in theory, goes up. Um, Lanre, before we jump into the discussion, can you give us a bit more uh, insight into the quantity theory of money and how it's used to value uh, cryptocurrencies? Because I saw in the latest research piece you did address it as well. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go into this very briefly, just because it can get a bit convoluted. Uh, so, as Hansen mentioned, the Equation of exchange, the quantitative theory of money, uh, states that MV equals PQ, where M would be the monetary base of a given crypto asset. So Ethereum's um, network value market cap is is about 12, 12 billion right now, and that would be represented by M. V is the velocity. So in a given time period, normally taken as a year, how many times does Ethereum change hands? Or how many times does a token change hands? 
uh, P is the price level of the of the digital resource being provisioned. So this gets a bit complicated, but I think a better example is for file storage. So uh, in a file storage decentralized network, the digital good being provisioned would be uh, file storage, as, as you know. And so yes. P would represent dollars per gigabyte, for example. And then Q, which so MV equals PQ, Q would be the quantity of gigabytes within this internal you know, economic system. So typically, in value, like so, typically in this kind of valuation, which was kind of pioneered by Chris Benisky, who I mentioned earlier, uh, it's, you would normally solve for M, which would be you would solve for the market cap, the, the market cap of this uh, crypto asset, and then you would simply divide by the predicted quanti- uh, circulating supply of this uh, crypto asset to find out the price per coin, and then within the typical valuation model, things like velocity price of the good uh, per digital resource in Q are all variable numbers, which could be changed depending on one's uh, model inputs. But yeah, typically one would solve for M, and that more or less just summarizes uh, the model in two seconds. Okay, I gotta admit that was quite complicated, especially if we just do it verbally, and not, not because of your explanation, just because uh, in general. Uh, but let's talk about velocity, right? So according to the theory, it's better for the value of a token if people are incentivized to, to, to hold a token for a longer time. Now, my question is, is there an incentive to hold a utility token for a particular application outside of if you want to use it, right? So let, let, let's use the example of Siacoin again. Um, only, there's only an incentive to hold the Siacoin if you intend to you know, buy storage from there. But if, if every company has their own uh, token, or not every, but many companies have their own token, my claim or the claim of you know, critics of, of this model is that there's a lack of incentivization for people to hold that particular currency unless they're using it. What do you think about that? I, I think it's an interesting point, and there was a lot of debate around this specific topic, which some people in the industry have called the velocity problem, quote-unquote, Yeah. Uh, especially from one critic, this guy, uh, someone called John Pfeffer, who, who runs a family office which invests quite a lot in Bitcoin. And yes, yeah, so I think from a theoretical basis, you know, such an argument could be convincing. You know, so the idea that if I want to buy file storage with Filecoin, all I do is simply buy. So at the point of purchase, at the point of when I need the file storage, I'll buy Filecoin and then I'll have the file storage. And whoever I sold the file, bought the. Uh, so whoever I. Uh, whoever receives. The Filecoin, when I receive the storage, would then probably just sell the files, uh, the Filecoin on. So exactly. no one would necessarily hold the Filecoin for a very long time, and that would necessarily have a you know positive effect on the, on the monetary base of the system. I think such an argument, you know, implicitly kind of in- assumes that velocity is exogenous or or independent of all the other variables within the equation of exchange, which isn't necessarily the case. So, for example. If P within this uh, within this Filecoin example is especially low, uh, so, so, so the price of the, the price of the uh, getting storage to buy yes, so the price of to get storage at a given point is especially low. And let's say it's below the wider market's price, then people may have an incentive to hold to hold file storage for a longer period of, to hold the Filecoin for a longer period of time, which will obviously have an effect on velocity. So. The individual components in the equation of exchange 
can actually impact each other, which makes things a lot more complicated. So, so to make an argument that, you know, Keteris Paradis in any given system, velocity would necessarily always, you know, tend to infinity because of, uh, because of the dynamics of like a decentralized storage system isn't necessarily something that makes much sense. But I think even given that, what you have seen in a lot of these token projects is that in various ways, they've, they've tried to introduce what, what people call velocity sinks. So artificial means of decreasing the velocity of a given crypto asset. So making someone stake their token for a given period of time or making sure the token gets burned and removed from circulating supply after one has used it. And a lot of those kind of token models were added as a response to the velocity problem, uh, the ostensible velocity problem. I think one of the the the, the themes here, and Ophelia sort of um, touched on it earlier, is just how early it is with respect to a number of these um, models. I just think that um, we still don't quite know how this will um, uh, how this will end up um, resolving itself. One of the one of the interesting things, and I'll, I'll just say this before we wrap up, is much like we have issues with things being called crypto and encompassing, uh, you know, according to the Berneski model, all these crypto payment tokens plus crypto commodities plus crypto stores of value plus this or that. We tend to lump uh, into a monolith in the same exact manner, things like these token models, right? Um, if the token models include things like traditional security tokens as they are today, well, no, they, 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 they will look different than ICO or utility tokens as we see them today, or perhaps new economic models as we see them in the future. So I think one of the issues we have when we, when we end up discussing these kinds of things is just how nuanced it is. And I think it should be, and perhaps we should do this on a, on a future brainstorm, um, really beneficial if we can dissect these specific types more and almost create a model for uh, a mental model, at least for this is how security tokens should be in the future. This is how um, these current ICOs could be triggered, etc. This was it from the Amun team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week.